is the most important thing about us. Now this morning, we are returning to 1 John. And as we do that and we enter this next text, we are stepping out onto the tip, and I would say just the very, very tip of the iceberg of considering the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So what I'd like you to think in your mind is what does come into your mind when you think of the Holy Spirit? Do you know much about Him? Do you know much about His person? Do you know much about His ministry? And I wish we had the time and that the sermon today was going to be delving into a full-orbed look at the Holy Spirit, but we are going to take just the tiniest of looks at it because we're only going to cover what comes up in the text of 1 John. But I do want to suggest to you that what too often comes into people's mind at the mention of the Holy Spirit, and especially in Christians' minds, is an enthusiasm to delve into some debate or some discussion about spiritual gifts. And that fascination is relatively modern in our time. It does not go back very far in history. Pentecostalism, which focuses on the spiritual gifts, only came about in the early 1900s. The charismatic movement that we're sort of bombarded with, especially if you go onto YouTube, only came about in mainline denominations in the 1960s. And the so-called third wave evangelicalism, where guys will stand up and say, God told me, or I had a dream, let me tell you about it, only came into our world in the 1980s. It is a fairly recent phenomenon when considering the work and person of the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that all of these things usher in, and you actually see this even in evangelical circles, is they feed on this desire that people have, this almost insatiable desire that people have to hear a fresh word from God, to hear God speak to them in a particular way. God's authoritative word, the Holy Bible, is deemed to be old and irrelevant, which not only dishonors God, but dishonors in particular the Holy Spirit and His work. The psalmist declares in Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You read elsewhere, Psalm 19, for example, that God's words, His precepts, His Bible that we have is better than gold, finer than silver. But the 20th century man or woman says, it is no, it's not sweet, I don't want to try it, or I tried it and it is bitter. Give me something sweeter. Give me something new. Give me something fresh. If you do a Google search, and I did this, sometimes I, I almost don't like doing this in preparation for sermons, because when you search things on Google, then all of a sudden ads and suggestions come up in perpetuity, and I get some of the weirdest ones from some of the searches I do for this, but if you search Google for how to hear God, how to hear God, it produces in less than half a second 2.16 billion links. You heard that number right, 2.16 billion links for how to hear God. Now, if you clicked on one of those links every 30 seconds without ever taking a break, it would take you 2,055 years to click on every single one of them. So is it plausible to you that God is actually trying to teach us to hear His voice audibly through these pundits, pundits on the internet? I would suggest not. If you do a similar search, you don't like the internet, you like paper books, you search on Amazon, how to hear God's voice, and it will give you a list, and I was going to read a bunch of the titles, but I, I had to cut things to get in reasonable time today, but it will give you pages and pages of books. Virtually every author out there that you can imagine has written at least one, sometimes two, because there is obviously a lot of fame in claiming to hear directly from God, and people get enamored with that, and there's a lot of money in trying to proclaim to you that there's some secret sauce that you can get out of these books and suddenly hear from God without looking at His Word. It hits evangelical circles too. You can look at Rick Warren's website. This is a man who's already made millions and millions of dollars peddling pragmatism in his books. 
And if you'll just spend $17 for his CD series, he will teach you how to hear God talk to you without ever opening the Bible. I would suggest you save your money. He has enough, as do most of the rest of them. And of course, there are countless YouTube channels that you can subscribe to to hear false prophets and false teachers deliver to you a word from God that basically looks like a horoscope that you could read. So, save your time, save your money. Let's remind ourselves of a few things about the ministry of the Holy Spirit before we turn to 1 John, because this is going to be relevant to our understanding of what John is telling us. The first thing you need to have in your mind is that the Holy Spirit is God, right? The Holy Spirit is God in the same way that Jesus, the eternal Son, is God. The Holy Spirit is God in the same way that the Father is God. The Trinity is three persons in one God. And while the Holy Spirit is referred to as the third person of the Trinity, the Son being the second person of the Trinity, the Father, the first person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is not lesser than the Son, and He is not lesser than the Father. That is not why we give them those designations. The Holy Spirit shares the same nature as the Son and the Father with the exact same attributes. He is eternally existing. He is immutable. He's unchangeable or unchanging. He does not lie. He knows all. He sees all. He is omnipresent. He shares all of the attributes of the Godhead. These are three persons, one God. Second, God does speak. God does speak and He has spoken. He has spoken to us and He has spoken to us in His written Word. And He has done that by and through the work of the Holy Spirit. That is one of His key ministries to us. That is indeed what the Apostle Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is not passive. Third, note that God spoke in many different ways and at many different times in the past. Right? We see this starting in the Old Testament. God spoke to Abram in a vision. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He called out audibly to Samuel. God spoke to Isaiah in a grand throne room vision. He spoke to Daniel in a dream. God even spoke to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey. One of my favorite stories. But we don't live in the past. We don't live in those times, and the Holy Spirit tells us something about whether we should expect to have donkeys talk to us or have wild dreams that give us new revelation from God. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the days that we live in now, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. God has spoken once for all through His Son, through Jesus. And in His providence and by the work of the Holy Spirit, these things have been written down. And they have been preserved and they have been passed on to us authoritatively and without error and fully sufficient to know God and to know ourselves. Finally, The last thing to keep in mind, it is the Holy Spirit who both inspired the words of Scripture, right? God breathed every word of Scripture. And it is the Holy Spirit who actually illuminates God's Word for our understanding. That is one of the ministries of the third person of the Godhead, is to actually bring this text to life. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. His work of illumination so that we can read and understand and apply His Word to our lives. Now this morning, we will not focus on that ministry, but we will come back to it. We will focus on one of the other ministries of the Holy Spirit, a very critical ministry, and that is giving believers assurance of their salvation. That you can know that you are saved. 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us 
of His Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to Your Word this morning, by the work of Your Spirit, please open our hearts. Please open our ears. Please open our eyes to see the glorious truths that You have laid out in front of us. More importantly, Lord, we pray that by the Spirit's work, Your Word would be illuminated and we would apply it to our lives. Lord, we pray that we would learn, even though that we cannot delve deeply into the majesty of the Holy Spirit this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, and we will be in verses 13 to 16. Now, you'll recall from last week, as we started into what can be this bigger block of text, verse 7 all the way through the first part of chapter 5, that John here is not teaching us something new. This is not new doctrine that he's laying out in his letter. Rather, he is circling back, kind of like a good teacher, and repeating themselves in different ways so that it will sink in, so that you will actually get what they are saying. And he is giving encouragement along the lines of the tests that he has laid out. If you broke down the whole section, what you would see is, first, the encouragement to love one another, which we looked at last week, verses 7 through 12. This week is the second part, God's indwelling and His abiding love, verses 13 through 16. And next week, and finally, we will see the perfect love and confidence in the day of judgment, verses 17 through 21. So let's read our text and then we will dive into it, starting in verse 13. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Now, if you have your Bible open and you look back just a little bit to chapter 3, verse 24, you'll see the last sentence of that verse says, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. And our text, of course, opens with a very similar verse. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Now, if those two texts were the only texts of Scripture you had, would you now have perfect assurance of your salvation? If you're being honest with yourself. Or wouldn't you have at least one, if not a few more, questions that come out of those? Like, how do you know you've received the Spirit? Receiving the Spirit is what gives you assurance. How do you know that you've received the Holy Spirit? So, that is what we're going to dive into here in 1 John, because he lays it out for us. I hope when we're finished this morning that you will be able to read that verse and either walk away with the comfort and assurance of your salvation that that is meant to provide, or you will see that in fact you are not filled with the Spirit, you are not saved, and you will be convicted that you need to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. There are only two possible outcomes in reading this verse, so let's dig in. Now we keep reading. In 1 John, and we read it in our opening verse, this phrase of abiding in Christ or abiding in God. And we've covered it before, but you need to understand that that is just John's way of saying it. It is synonymous with saying that you are forgiven, that you are saved for all eternity by your faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. And so the text says, you will know that you are saved. In other words, that you are in Christ. By the fact that God has given you of His Spirit. So let's know what the Bible is saying here. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not optional. It is not an optional add-on for some Christians. There is actually no such thing as a Christian saved by God who is then waiting for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That is an impossibility. If you are a believer, then the Holy Spirit is at work within you You are indwelt by God. That is exactly what John is saying. We see it more clearly in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you, you Christian, Paul is writing to Christians here, or do you, Christian, not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The Holy Spirit is in you if you are a believer. Now, you can turn to the book of Acts. We're not going to turn there now. But you can certainly pray for greater fillings of the Holy Spirit at different times. And you see the apostles do just that as they go out to proclaim the gospel or as they face great persecution and need the strength of God to stand firm on truth. But all believers are indwelt. They are filled. They're baptized, as some people like to say, in the Spirit. They are all filled with the Spirit of God. All believers. All who follow Jesus Christ. Now, is that important? It is. It is important. It is, in fact, so important that John has written virtually the same thing twice within the span of a couple short paragraphs under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit himself. The Apostle Paul answers the question as well, and you find it over and over throughout the New Testament. Can you be saved by Jesus without being filled by the Spirit? Without having the Holy Spirit indwell you? No, you cannot. The Bible is clear. Romans 8, 9. Again, writing to Christians in the churches in Rome. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Just for clarity, when you read Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, these are referring to the Holy Spirit. You think of the Trinity from all eternity. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternally begotten. The Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son, therefore referred to as the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ. You are a Christian. You have the Spirit of God. So why does this appear to John, in John's letter? Why does John write this in a letter that so far has been sort of circling around three themes? He's telling us you need to believe in Christ alone. You need to have the right set of beliefs in Jesus to be saved. He's telling us, well, you can test yourselves by whether you obey his commandments. And if you don't and you have no desire, then you are likely not saved. And he is also telling us to love one another and laying out what that means. And he circles through those three topics over and over again. So why all of a sudden is this focus on the Holy Spirit? The simple answer is this, your salvation is God's work. Your salvation is God's work. It is a manifestation of God's love. Remember John pointing to that, sending the Son to save us is a manifestation of God's love. Redemption is an, a Trinitarian act that was brought to fruition in the hearts of those who repent and believe in Christ by the actions of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three. And while that may seem to be a bit of a mystery, hard to wrap our heads around, the simple way of saying it is that God's saving grace is received by you. It is not earned by you. You can do nothing to earn it. You receive it. You think back to Jesus as he's talking and saying to the little children, anyone who comes to me must receive like this little child, bringing nothing to the table, but receiving God's saving grace. And this is very important in the way that John's letter is laid out and what the whole of the New Testament is telling us. It is saying this, the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ, the fact that we obey His commands, the fact that we seek to do His will, the fact that we love one another, they all provide evidence that God has taken hold of our lives by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and has made these things possible. He has made these things possible. Just so you don't confuse me, this does not remove your personal responsibility. The Bible is clear about both of these facts. God does this, and yet you are also responsible to believe and to do these things. In fact, if you do not know Jesus in a saving way, there is only one way, and that is to repent of sin and to believe in Him, to follow Him, take up your cross, follow Him for salvation and eternal life. But let me say that one more time, because this is critical to understanding what John is saying here. The fact that we believe in Christ and that we obey His commands, that we seek to do His will, that we love one another sacrificially just as Christ loved us, all of these provide evidence that God has taken hold of your life by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and made these things possible. 
Look back at the letter of 1 John and you will begin to see this more clearly as he puts this in this light. Because John has been talking about obedience. If you don't obey, you won't be saved. He's been talking about love. If you don't, if you don't love this way, you're not saved. He's talking about doctrine. If you don't believe these things, you will not be saved. And yet, John is never proclaiming the false doctrine of a works-based salvation. He's not giving you a tick check the box list of things that you can go out and try to do. What he is giving you is tests to look back and either confirm that indeed you are saved by Jesus or you are not and you must turn to him. We see that in a couple of verses that I'll rattle through in 1 John. It'll be chapter 3 verse 24 and then in our text this morning verses 12, 13, 15, and 16. You see in those texts no less than six references to God abiding in us. He abides in us by the Holy Spirit. You see six references to that. In each of those verses, you see laid right out alongside them the evidence of this indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's explained. You look at those verses, you see God abides in us, and how do you know? Verse three, or chapter 3, verse 24, you know because you keep His commands. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 16, you know because you love one another as Christ loved us. In verse 15, you know because you believe. You confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then because God clearly knows His people and knows that we need clarity and we need repetition and we need things said in multiple ways, John just comes right out and says it. He states plainly the reason we know that God abides in us by the work of the Holy Spirit The reason that we pass these tests of salvation is because He has given us of His Spirit. It is an amazing display of God's grace. It is not earned by us. And I want to take just a quick step backwards in history so that we understand how blessed we are to live on this side of the incarnation of Christ, the first advent. People looked forward to this event, and yet we live in the last days under the new covenant And have this blessing. You can look at John chapter 14 and chapter 16. And you see the promise that Jesus is making. That the Holy Spirit would be sent by the Father and the Son. After Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He said in John 16, 7. If I go, I will send him to you. And this was in fulfillment of the prophecy. Going back to Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. He says, this is God speaking. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. What was the problem before that? Without the work of the Spirit, there's no desire for that. And God again spoke through the prophet Joel. Joel 2.28 And it shall come to pass afterward, he's speaking of the last days, the days of judgment. It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, verse 29, even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, right? In other words, on everyone. This will not be limited to a few. Then you jump forward to the New Testament in Acts 2, and you see this promise fulfilled. This promise that God has foretold about pouring out his spirit. Jesus had risen from the grave. He had ascended into heaven, and right before he did, he told his disciples, remain in Jerusalem until the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit has happened. And they did. And they gathered in that upper room, and they prayed, 120 of them. And then you jump to verse 4, a verse we're all familiar with. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. What were they saying? Verse 11 tells us, they were telling of the mighty works of God. They were telling of the mighty works of God to all who could hear and understand. But the emphasis I want you to take from that outpouring is that all believers were filled. Every one of them. It does not say that the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit so they could go out and establish the church. But the rest of the people went along with them. It doesn't say that the upcoming people who were going to be called as teachers, preachers, and evangelists were also filled so they could do that. No, all were filled. Every believer in that room was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
that mean that the Holy Spirit is received by all people? It does not. It does not. It is limited to those who will believe. John 14, 17 says, The world cannot receive Him. The unbelieving, rebellious world cannot receive Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. It's not all people. And so writing some 60 years after these events at Pentecost, John now writes to give believers that are remain in the church this assurance. And he writes in 1 John 4.13, By this we know that we abide in Him, and, him in, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. It's a very straightforward statement. If you have received the Spirit of God, if He indwells you, then you have evidence of your salvation. That's what John is saying. But here's the flip side. Here's what's not said. If the Holy Spirit does not dwell within you, you are going to stand judgment. And you are going to eternally experience God's wrath against you for your sin and rebellion against Him. So this is an important question. Eternity is actually at stake. So understanding this verse then becomes vitally important. Does the Holy Spirit actually indwell you? Does He fill you? Can you say with certainty from reading that in 1 John that that's enough? Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. And this is one of those questions that we should apply that to. Because John writes to us for one reason, so that we will have assurance, so that we will know. He's trying to give us comfort. So let's look at the tests that he gives us. These are only a tiny sampling. You can go throughout Scripture. You can come up with lots of different ways to question yourself about this. But we're going to try to stick mostly with what John is actually providing us. I'm not even going to touch on the topic of spiritual gifts. That is going to be for a different day. We're not going to talk about that because that's not actually the evidence that John points to for how you know that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're not going to be looking at the sensational or the miraculous in that regard. I know myself and I'm sure everybody else would actually prefer some sort of miraculous sign that happened within us because what could give us greater assurance, right? Because indeed, the Holy Spirit is mysterious in a way. In fact, Jesus says in John 3.8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There is a little mystery surrounding this. But I would just suggest to you, if you're looking for the miraculous, there is a miracle. Is there anything more miraculous than raising the dead to life? Not really. Not really. And so there is nothing more miraculous than God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raising a person who is dead in their sins and trespasses against God to life and life eternal in faith in Jesus Christ. You can find that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. So let's see if God has helped us ask ourselves some questions in His Word. And you shouldn't be surprised, given this is 1 John, that it will generally follow His outline of tests that He has given us already. We'll see doctrine, right belief. This is the order in which we'll do them, because this is kind of how He covers them. The moral test, obedience. And the social test, love, which is what He closes with. So the first test that we have in 1 John to unravel this mystery of whether you know you are filled with the Holy Spirit is right in the text, right in the block of verses that we read this morning. And I'll give you a little hint if you don't see it jumping off the page at you. How do you know you're saved? You can't answer because you're filled with the Holy Spirit because that's cheating. So how else do you know you're saved? There's lots of texts in the Bible we could go to. Let's pick a familiar one, Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Pretty straightforward. John 1.12, whoever believes in the name of Jesus is given the right to become a child of God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're saved. This looks exactly like the doctrinal test of 1 John. It's right belief in the person and work of Christ by faith. By belief in Jesus, in His person, right? He is God the Son, eternal, come in the flesh. Very God, very man. By His work, 
His perfect life, his obedience to God's law, his death on the cross in substitution for all who will believe in him, his resurrection, his ascension, by belief in that, by faith and belief in the person and work of Christ, a person is saved. Great. Where is the Spirit of God at work in that? Where is the Spirit of God at work in that? Let me ask you another question. Think to a time that you have shared the good news of Jesus Christ, preferably with a group of people. It's easier. You can think if you've only done it once. Why do two people, both dead in their sins and trespasses, both rebels against God, why do these two people hear the same gospel message and one repents, one is convicted to the core and repents in front of a holy God, changes life, conforms to God's decrees, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and follows Him. And the other person who starts off the same way looks at you and scoffs and laughs and calls you an idiot and walks away. Was it because one was nicer? Was it because one was smarter? We know that that's not true. And in fact, the Bible answers that question in a definitive no. It was not because one was smarter. And it was not because one was nicer. And it's not because you smiled more when you gave the message to one and frowned more when you gave the message to the other. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God by His grace that you have faith. So the real reason takes this back to our test. Because belief, the right belief in Jesus is in fact the first evidence that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. For the clever ones out there, I'd like to add something that many of us do. No one can say Jesus is Lord and really mean it. And really mean it. Really follow Him. Really follow His Word. Really apply it to their life. Really see Him as Lord of all. Really recognize that all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted to Him. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. No one can confess that and mean it except by the Holy Spirit. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember how the Gospels start. The declaration that the kingdom of God is near. Christ has come. You cannot even see that unless you have been born again. Verses 5 and 6 there clarify that he is speaking of being born of God, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, a great work of the Spirit. And then coming back to our text this morning, here is how John gives the same answer. Verses 14 and 15. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son, sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, if some of you wonder if that lead-in about Scripture was going to come into play, this is where it's at, because the Holy Spirit works in and through God's Word. Article 20 of the 1689 Baptist Confession says this, and you'll find it in Westminster and others, the promise of Christ and salvation by him is revealed only by the Word of God. It will go on and say that you cannot, you cannot come to know Christ in a saving way by an inner light or by uh, something in creation. You can come to know God exists, but you cannot come to know Jesus. So listen to what John is actually saying. In verse 14, what he is doing is reiterating in shorthand way exactly how he opened the letter of 1 John. He is saying that on behalf of the apostles, the apostolic witness, he is declaring that he has seen with his own eyes, he has heard with his own ears, he has touched, he has beheld, he has marveled at Jesus, the eternal Son of God, and he has seen his glory, and he has seen his resurrected body, and he watched him ascend into heaven. He is an eyewitness, and he is proclaiming these things. To the church to which he writes, and to all of us. Now he says that, and we have to keep in mind that as we read the letter of 1 John, the very first audience that read the letter of 1 John was not in a different place than us. We all walk by faith, not by sight. We, we cannot see 
Christ. They have to rely on the testimony of the apostles, their witness, which is recorded in Scripture. Every word, God breathed, right? Men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we have that same witness today. So John has reiterated in shorthand these facts of an eyewitness. And then he suggests the evidence for knowing that you are filled by the Holy Spirit. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, well, it is that person that God abides in, and He in God. What John is doing here is he is stating a case. He is stating a propositional truth that you cannot believe that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh, the Savior of the world. You cannot believe in His perfect life and substitutionary death and resurrection unless God dwells in you and you dwell in God. And the manner in which God dwells in you is by the Holy Spirit. And the manner in which you know these things and you believe these things is because the Holy Spirit uses the apostolic witness of Scripture so that you can know who Jesus is and you can know what Jesus has done and you can follow Him. People without the Holy Spirit do not believe, do not truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That is what He is telling us. They do not stand, they may say, I believe in Jesus, but you will find none of them who say, I believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. No one enters heaven's gates. All will stand in judgment if they are not found in Christ. The person without the Spirit cannot say that. So John is saying that whoever can make this confession, whoever believes and truly believes the doctrines of Scripture and the revelation of who Jesus is and whoever then follows Jesus Christ as Savior on that basis of truth, that is a person who can say with assurance they are filled with the Holy Spirit. This has always been the case. This was actually the case for those who stood and watched Jesus in the first century, who listened to His teaching, who watched Him do miracles that attested to who He was. They watched Him, but they did not recognize any of that. We read all that all the time in the Gospels, and we marvel, and we say things like, if I was there, if I had seen that miracle, then I would have believed. But they did not. And they did not for a reason. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and verse 10. None of the rulers of this age, speaking of those people, understood this, that this that he's referring to is that Jesus is the Christ, is the Son of God. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit. Through His Spirit. There is no other way. You cannot accomplish your salvation through the exercise of human wisdom. If the men and women who could see Him with their own eyes and could listen to Him and could watch Him could not believe, then how could somebody today who has nothing but the witness and the testimony of Scripture and the witness of the church? Now, many people today claim to know Jesus. Lots of people claim to know Jesus, but they demonstrate by their lives what they, with what they believe, what they support, with who they associate with. They show that the Jesus that they believe in is nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. He is not the Son of God. He is not the Jesus who is the Savior, the only Savior. He is not the Jesus who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, Hebrews 1.3. He is not the Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, referring to before creation and at creation and all through the Old Testament. There is no ability to say that was a different God. No, that was Jesus. That was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People have a Jesus who changes with the times. It changes with their personal desires. They have an imaginary Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's not the Jesus they can say is the Son of God. And is the Christ. So how do you know? How does one know Jesus? This Jesus to whom John testifies. To whom the apostles testify. Is the Savior sent to save the world. There is only one way. There is only only one way to know Jesus, and that is through belief 
in the testimony that the apostles have given to us in the form of Scripture, in the form of the New Testament of the Holy Bible. And that is why you cannot divorce the work of the Holy Spirit in authoring Scripture through the hands of men from the reality that He does work first and foremost through the Word of God. The only things that you can possibly know about Jesus that are worth knowing are written in Holy Scripture. You cannot know in any other way. Now, I said New Testament because I referred to the apostles, but it is not just the New Testament, mind you. So don't sort of jump on board with the false teachers who say, get rid of the old, we'll only focus on the new. Remember instead that Jesus, as he had risen from the grave, he walked with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he said to them in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, shorthand way of saying the Bible, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, scriptures being the Old Testament. So here we are today. You do not find Jesus in dreams or visions. You don't find him in secret meditations. You find him in scripture. And importantly, what makes you a Christian is indeed that you accept and you believe in a body of teaching and doctrine about the Lord Jesus that is contained in Scripture, breathed out by the third person of the Trinity. The confession that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you believe that He is Lord of all, that Jesus was truly God and truly man, that He lived in perfect submission to the will of God and that He died in substitution for all who would believe in Him, that He rose from the grave, that He ascended into heaven and He sits at the Father's right hand, that He holds all authority on earth today and in heaven. That a confession is prima facie evidence that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That is what John is telling us. Now let's shift to the moral test, the test of obedience, and see what John tells us. Now let's begin with another question. You can ask yourself, are you deeply aware of within yourself? Are you deeply grieved? Over the battle that rages within you, because it rages within all. It raged within the Apostle Paul. Can you relate to his statements, Romans 7, 15 and 18, where he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Are you aware of that battle within you when you fall, when you slip, when you grieve the Spirit by your sin? Galatians 5.17 says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. If you are aware of that battle that goes on daily inside you, this battle between the new person that you are in Christ, in this battle that you fight against your own flesh, the world, the devil, then that is evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Paul captures this as he continues in Galatians 5, and he juxtaposes what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and to be living apart from God, as he calls on people for repentance and faith. He starts by pointing out what it looks like for those who are not indwelt by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the clause that any rule follower should hate, and things like these. This isn't comprehensive. The list is longer. These are just examples. You can't just say, I don't do any of those. I'm good. And things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Message entirely consistent with what we've seen in 1 John. A lifestyle of sin marks you as standing outside the kingdom of God. If these things categorize your life, if these things categorize your beliefs, if these are the things that motivate you and you want to be around, then the message is actually plain and simple in Scripture. Repent. Repent. Turn away from. 
right? Turn away from the selfish and self-destructive behaviors that lead to death and instead turn to Christ. Put your faith in Him for He gives life and life eternal. Because we have the further text, what does it look like for those who are filled with the Spirit? Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You all know that only a living tree can bear fruit. Only a living tree can bear fruit. And if you live by the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, if you are alive in the Spirit, then you should see this fruit in your life. Perfectly? No. But growing and some evidence of it? Absolutely. The last test. We'll shift to the final test, the social test, or love, because this is where John closes out this section. You can begin sort of back to the way we opened, by pondering, how do you think of God? How do you think of God? Do you think of God as some distant creator, a judge, the one whom you don't know intimately, but you either fear or ignore? Or do you think of him in a different way? Consider what Paul writes in Romans 8, 13-17. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified by Him. It is evidence in your life that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit if you can approach the holy, the perfectly holy, almighty Creator, and you approach Him as Father, praising Him for who He is. Praising Him for what He has done in saving you. But also bringing every one of your concerns to Him in the full confidence and trust that He loves you. And that He works for your good, but ultimately for His glory. So you trust no matter what your circumstances. That God is caring for you. And that it is indeed for your good and His glory. John closes out this way with verse 16. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It is indeed the indwelling Spirit of God. God abiding in you by faith in Jesus. That is the way that you come to know the love that God has for you. Because that love was so great that He sent His only Son to die in your place. So that by turning from sin, by believing in Him, you can be saved. It was a love so great that He sent His Holy Spirit into your heart as a witness of this amazing truth. And to draw you to Christ. And when we believe and we walk with Christ as Lord, when we understand these things, we can't help but love Him But knowing what He has done for us and the great mercy that He has shown us, we can't help but love each other sacrificially. And all who observe that should see something different about our lives than those in the world. Far more can obviously be said about that text. We've covered love kind of at length, so we'll close it here. If we summarize this text in a simpler way, we would say this. We could say that we, are know, we can know that we are saved for all eternity, that we live in God and God in us because He has sent His Spirit into us. And we know that He has given His Spirit to us because we believe and we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is the only Savior. And because we love, because of the faith that we have in Christ and the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Believing in Jesus, in a saving way, and loving one another as Christ loved us 
are two evidences of the Holy Spirit's active work in our lives. And that Holy Spirit, His active work in our lives in that way, gives us the assurance that we are indeed forgiven. That we are saved for all eternity. That we are children of the Almighty God. If you lack that evidence, it's simple. The message of Christ is so simple. Repent. And believe in Him and Him alone for your salvation. Because all who will come to Him, He will take. He turns no one away. You are always welcome by the only Savior, the very one who is the manifestation of God's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's hard to say that we even scratched the surface this morning of both the mystery and the majesty that is the work of redemption of your people. Hard for us to comprehend the truths of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the work that takes place in our lives to save us. And Father, we know that you have called us to respond take action, follow, seek to obey, seek to love. We're grateful that you have given us of your Spirit. Guide us and help us to convict us of our sin and draw us to repentance daily. Lord, these truths are so wonderful. We pray that you would help us hold on to them, help us understand them. And Father, we do pray for the fullness of the Spirit that the apostles prayed for, to give us the boldness to go out in the world and proclaim the glorious truth that you have sent your Son, and you have sent him to save. Lord, give us that boldness. Give us the words to speak. Give us the faith to act. Lord, most of all, give us the self-awareness to come to you seeking forgiveness as we grow in conformity to the image of your Son throughout this life, ever looking forward to the day he returns. It is his name we pray. Amen.